Welcome to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Leslie Berlin. She's the author of Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age. This is Technotopia. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York, that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Leslie Berlin. She's the author of Troublemakers uh, and a historian for the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford. Uh, welcome, Leslie. This is, a, this is a fascinating book that you wrote here. Ah, oh, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Troublemakers? Uh, it's basically about troublemakers, right? Yeah. It's about this remarkable period of time in Silicon Valley history in the 1970s, where the valley went from being basically an obscure place with one industry at its heart, microchips, sort of gearheads selling to other gearheads, to in the space of just a few years, you had the birth of the video game industry and the personal computer industry and modern venture capital and the first ARPANET transmission and the biotech industry. It's just like watching the Big Bang happen. And Mm -hmm. this book looks at seven kind of unknown players who made that happen. So let's just not, not, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but what, what happened in that, in that period? Cause it was, it's, it's quite literally the, the, I mean, for all intents and purposes, the, it was a brownfield down there because it was, uh, because the chip makers were pouring stuff out. It was basically just a industry. It was an industrial town. And then all of a sudden everybody built on top of that industry. Is that, is that what happened? Yeah. I mean, basically you're exactly right. I mean, it's something that people don't really know about Silicon Valley was that it it was a manufacturing economy. There were factories building all of this stuff. And what happened was you had this perfect confluence of the microprocessor uh, coming out in 1971, hitting this cu- counterculture-influenced culture where their minds were just sort of open to trying all kinds of new things. And you just had this incredible kind of efflorescence of ideas. And meanwhile, uh, this this is part two that people don't really know about, uh, the rules around who could invest in uh, risky sorts of what we would call startups today changed on the federal level. And so then all of a sudden you had all this money coming in too. So it was just the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Could it have, could that have happened anywhere? Could a Pittsburgh have done this at that same time? You know, I, I think that what the Valley had going for it um, was, first of all, there was a previous generation who sort of helped people figure out how do you build an ecosystem of innovation. And those were the chip makers. And that's where the groundwork for a lot of this sort of startup ecosystem was built. And secondly, I think that uh, Silicon Valley, when it got started, was in this really unique situation where... Uh, this was still an, an agricultural region, so there wasn't really industry here. And yet, of course, we're talking the 1950s. The whole rest of the country is completely developed. The rest of the world is as well. So they were able to sort of 
build this bespoke infrastructure around the whole idea of starting electronics companies from mm-hmm. the ground up. There wasn't a lot to clear out of the way. Hmm. Interesting. So there, so it was, I mean, the, the, I, it's clear the primary reason is that you had, you had a, you had a, I guess the, the hippies, uh, the, the folks with open minds, I guess you could say, uh, folks who are still taking LSD and a bunch of guys who could basically say, oh, you want to make a computer that can print a book? I guess we could do that. Here, try this, right? Is that the, yeah, that's is that the exa- attitude? That's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and also, you know, sometimes those were the same people and sometimes they weren't. And um, that's always interesting to watch. So like if you look at Xerox Park, where a lot of this development happened, yeah, there were definitely some people who were, you know, experimenting with all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, they took tea breaks, you know, there was no alcohol <laughs> allowed. on. So everyone around them is having all of these beer bashes and on the on the production line at Atari, I mean, everybody's stoned out of their minds. And then at Xerox Park, they're drinking tea. And so it's, you know, it's this whole range, but it's this, it's this combination. And I think that's what's so important and exciting when you think about even Silicon Valley now is it's this intersection of ideas coming from academia and from, you know, the broader culture and from the tech side. And now, of course, from all over the world with the huge influx of immigrants to the valley. And it's exactly that sort of mixing up of all of those different streams that keeps things uh, lively and moving. So I'm a, I am live in New York, so I always make fun of uh, the valley. Um, am I right to do so? Is has, has it lost some of that edge? You know, it's it's a really interesting question, and actually, it's funny because there's a billboard right now that's <laughs> up along the 101 yep. corridor, and it shows. Uh, it, it says basically, "I'm so," and then all of the little um, marks for swearing. You know, I'm so blankety blank 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 frustrated in Silicon Valley, and then it says something like, "Come to NYC.com," <laughs> and so I mean, New York is promoting itself as the mellow alternative to Silicon Valley, um, and which I think is really funny. Uh, you know, there's no doubt that uh, Silicon Valley is no longer the place where outsiders go to make their mark, right? I mean, it, it's it's so mainstream as to be a little bit of a cliche right now. And this is, there's a lot of money here. And I think that that to some degree has changed things. Um, but I think that you're dealing with now people who really are trying to to make things happen not everyone i mean literally you know burrito delivery by drone is not going to change the world but i do think um we still have a lot of that spirit here it's you know it, but there's a lot of that spirit everywhere which i think mm-hmm. is um really a testament to to the the importance that all of this technology has taken in our lives i mean this is when you want to make a mark now this is one way to do it interesting what does uh what does the future look like so so is it a and we we kind of discussed this already but is it a possible to export that sort of innovation outside of the valley and b does it make sense to uh, can, can there be, can there be multiple Silicon Valleys or does it have to be just one? Um, how long does this last? Yeah. Great question. 
Uh, so first of all, there already are multiple Silicon Valleys. I mean, I think if you talk to anyone in Seattle to just take our our closest neighbor mm-hmm. with this, they they would say, you know, what what are you talking about? And and so it's been from the beginning actually. And now Silicon Valley wouldn't exist without all of these other innovation ecosystems all over the world. And uh, that that's clear. I think that um, Silicon Valley is what it is uh, for two reasons. One is that there has been an ethos here of what um, Steve Jobs called passing the baton of mm-hmm. sort of one generation coming up and then passing the handing off kind of leadership in tech to the next generation. So um, Jobs talked about when he was fired from Apple how the first thing he did was call David Packard uh, and Robert Noyce, who was one of the co-founders of Intel, and apologize for feeling like he'd sort of let the team down. And I think um, Silicon Valley needs to continue sort of understanding that the way this works is you make it and then you turn around and you help the next person make it. The second really important kind of secret to the Valley uh, is how important immigrants are in the Valley. At this point, two-thirds of the people working in science and tech in the Valley, you know, young people, sort of 25 to 44, two-thirds of those people were born outside of the United States. And more than half of the unicorn companies with valuations of a billion dollars or more that are publicly held, more than half of those have a founder or co-founder born outside of the United States. And so when people say, well, you know, what is a threat to Silicon Valley? For my money, the number one threat is a closing down the immigration nozzle. Yeah, the, the, there are so many other places in the world that would be thrilled to have what Silicon Valley and by extension the United States has had for decades, which is being able to bring in the very best and brightest from around the world. And we need to make sure that that, that opportunity continues to exist. Okay, and that's and that's that's essentially nationwide. That's not a that's not a specific that's not specific to the valley, right? That's that's right. Sure. Okay. Um, what does it take? You you profiled a bunch of uh, a bunch of the smartest uh, smartest nerds in the room. What does it take to be <laughs> those to be those guys? Uh, and unfortunately, it's mostly guys, right? So let's say let's say uh, how how can how can if I'm a if I'm a um, minority or if I'm a woman, how do I become part of that part of that troublemakers club yeah so i mean the first thing i'll point out actually is that uh two of the six main stories that i tell are actually about Mm -hmm. women so you did have troublemaking women uh from the beginning and um what it takes is a combination of persistence and audacity, which don't always go hand in hand, because often people sort of have a big idea and then no ability to follow through on it. Mm-hmm. And th- those two are key. I think something else that not everyone in uh, the book or certainly today has, but is really something that m- most very, very successful uh, entrepreneurs have, uh, which is a sense of humility <laughs> and an appreciation that they actually, among other things, got lucky. I mean, yes, they were they were smart, um, but there are lots of smart people. And I think the importance of maintaining humility is actually that it keeps your focus on your ideas and your execution and not on sort of garnering the glory for yourself. And in terms of what um, people who are currently um, not in 
the, you know, not getting the baton passed to them, uh, which is a very real problem as we've seen documented. I mean, I think that part of the, the very painful conversations that have been happening now, uh, hopefully is going to turn out to be the silver lining to a lot of the kind of cloud cover we've been dealing with in that the way you solve this problem is you get more women and underrepresented minorities into positions of power and authority uh, so that they can continue to to pass that baton on. And it's it's just, it's it uh, has not proven to be an easy task, but mm -hmm. I'm hopeful um, with all the attention that's on it now that we're going to make some progress there. Yeah, it seems, it seems, I, I, I like the... Uh... The story that goes where the the computers were originally there they were they were women's work for all intents and purposes it was basically you go sit and you punch you do a key punch uh, system and you do the thing and then all of a sudden it became a boy's toy uh, in the eighties with the eight hundred XLs and everything and and you had a bunch of insular nerds who just sat there and played with with their Commodores until until they became Bill Gates I guess. Well, you know, I mean, that was one of the really interesting things. You have that story exactly right. And um, one of the really interesting things for me in reading all about this was the number of times where people would refer to the clerical stigma mm -hmm. of a keyboard, that typing was something that women <laughs> did. So now I'm not talking about programming. I'm talking about just getting these things used in people's everyday lives. And one of the really fascinating um, things that I heard was, uh, and, and actually agree with, uh, there's the story of when Xerox Park first demonstrated the personal computer in 1977. And I mean, it was a glorious demonstration. It, it, it was the first time that basically anyone would have ever seen uh, a graphical user interface and a mouse and email and printing. And I mean, th it was so advanced that they were controlling the cursors on other people's remote machines. Mm -hmm. And when that... Um, demonstration ended uh it was for the the xerox brass you know the big execs um one exec said to the other well what would you think about that and the other exec said you know i've never seen a man type that fast <laughs> <laughs> and that and that was that was sort of the the takeaway and it wasn't until the spreadsheet appeared mm -hmm. which didn't require womanly behavior because all you had to do was key in numbers and that's something men had been doing on adding machines and you know for a long long time uh that the personal computer really started to take off in the office context and uh, was through through the spreadsheet so this is so you, you're as you said you're a historian so you don't like to talk about the future what what are we missing right now that would be the equivalent of us sitting in the audience in 1977 and looking at the looking at the um um what was it called the the the, the mother of all demos and we're sitting right. there looking at we're looking at this and saying well where how's this guy typing so fast what are we missing right now that's as important but may not be but we're not noticing yeah so i mean a i wish i knew that mm -hmm. um but b to me i i think that where we need to go next has to do with some way of trying to build into the system realistic anticipation of what its what its consequences are going to be. So, I mean, I think that when we look at a lot of the controversy around uh, things like Facebook and fake news and um, Russian hacking and all of this, I think in some sense it's, it's the consequences of this technology 
developing so quickly and being adopted so quickly that it's kind of outrun uh, the even the most optimistic expectations for it early on. And I, I think that what we're missing and really would behoove us to develop is the ability to start thinking through, okay, absolutely in the most crazy uh future thinking we could come up with, what could we imagine this becoming? And then starting to build in what we can in terms of guardrails around that. Hmm. Okay. So the, so the idea that, that we're, what we're actually missing is could be, could be detrimental to us. I mean, I, I think there's societal issues with Facebook uh, and social media and also societal issues of just us being addicted to our phones. Are, is that what we might be missing? Well, yeah, that's what we need to figure out if mm-hmm. we're missing, I guess, is okay. is the way that I would put it. Um, you know, in terms of the sort of next big thing coming down the pike, I, I mean, I, I think most people feel like this is, you know, it's going to be some out shoot of AI. Um, but what that's going to look like, um, and I mean, talk about it, to, I mean, talk about something where we don't even know exactly how it works. You know, I mean, that's scary, but it's also exciting. And we're going to see what happens. Is there a historical precedent to something that we didn't know how it works, but we, uh, but we kind of wrangled it? I don't know. I don't know that there's something, there's a historical precedent in my knowledge to um, something that we didn't know how it works, but there's been a lot, uh, there've been a number of historical perspective, uh, uh, sort of precedents for things that, um, played out much more quickly uh, than we expected. Um, One of the stories that I tell in the book is about a recombinant DNA and sort of the birth of biotech. And that's a case where people were just uh, terrified in the beginning, including the scientists themselves were worried about what are the consequences of swapping genes among species. And um, it ended up playing out, you know, so far so good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, um, not in a way that people had expected. Wonderful. So the book is available now. Uh, I enjoyed it. It was a it was a great uh, it was a great view inside inside the value. It's, I think it was even better than uh, than Isaacson's. So you can uh, you can go make fun of him if you like. Uh, his whole. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, so it's called Troublemakers, uh, Leslie. Thank you for joining me on this. This is uh, this is fascinating. It's good to get a uh, get a backward looking perspective on things. I, I get a bunch of pie in the sky folks on here and I think this is uh, this really roots us uh, uh, really well. Well, I'm happy to, to provide the ingredients for the pie here. <laughs> All right, <laughs> talk to you later. All right, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Technotopia is brought to you by Typewriter. Typewriter is your on-demand editor and their amazing team of writers will make your book chapter, blog post, or email shine. Typewriter editors come from places like TechCrunch, Gizmodo, and the New York Times, and they offer low bulk rates for longer work. Check it out at typewriter.plus. That's typewriter.plus.